Well, good morning. Welcome here again to the Bridge Church. So exciting to, to be here with you in the flesh. And again, welcome to those who are on the live stream. Um, how many of you are watching the Olympics? Nobody. A few people, okay. Uh, as you know, we're about halfway through the 2020 Olympics. I don't know why they stuck with that year, but that's what they did. Uh, and uh, it's a bit of a weird one. The host country really wishes that they weren't hosting it. There are no fans. Canada only sent women to the Olympics, apparently. The woman and Andre de Grasse. Sorry, one guy went to the Olympics. Uh, and it's a very 2021 20, uh, kind of Olympics too, isn't it? I mean, there are as many conversations about mental health and social justice and politics as the sports themselves, but we're, we're still watching. And it's, it's, it's interesting how every four years, swimming and track and field become like the most compelling things in the world. You know, I don't follow the sports for four years, and then suddenly I know Kylie Moss's 200-meter backstroke, person, backstroke personal best. So that's how it kind of works with, uh, with the Olympics. Uh, one, one of the realms of the sports that we, one of the areas of the sports that we don't really watch much as a family uh, is the combat sports. But I do know that weight classes are a big deal in the combat sports, like wrestling, boxing, taekwondo, those kinds of things. Uh, that you want people to be basically the same size so that there's equality and fairness and that there is a, a set upon, uh, set, or there's an agreed upon set of rules that everybody has to follow in terms of what techniques are or are not allowed. I mean, can you imagine a sport in the Olympics where weight classes were obliterated and you can fight however you wanted to fight? How many of you would watch that sport? I, that was a test to see how depraved you were. And most of you, most of you passed. A couple, you need to check your hearts. No, I'm just kidding. Uh, that was basically the idea behind the Ultimate Fighting Championship, UFC, back in the 90s when it started. Uh, there were no weight classes and there were no rules, basically, besides no groin strikes, no biting, no eye, eye gouging. Those are the three rules. So they, they would have matches. There was one match between a six foot eight, 600-pound sumo wrestler and a five foot 11, 200-pound karate practitioner. This was a real thing. And it was just like, hey, this is going to be awesome to watch these two guys go at it. Now, the UFC didn't stick with that, and it never made it into the Olympics, but actually long before the UFC came along, it had a precedent in the Bible, a no-weight class, no rules, epic showdown between a comparatively diminutive shepherd and a, a seasoned veteran giant warrior. Now, this, uh, this summer, we're, we're spending time in some of these classic Old Testament stories, the kinds of stories that people in our culture, even if they have never read the Bible, still have a basic awareness of. And we are looking at these stories, and we're asking God to give us fresh uh, insight into these stories, to see them in a, in a new way. I know as a pastor, I, I try, I, I'm almost... I'm inclined to stay away from the kind of the cliche story, or not the cliche, but the, but the common, well-known stories. But, but there are times to get back to the classics. So today, guess which story we're talking about, guys? You are so smart. That's it. That's the one. So let's pray, and then we'll get into it. Jesus, I thank you again so much for today. I thank you so much for my brothers and sisters who are here uh, in the building and those who are on the live stream. I am so thankful, God, just to be able to share your word with people. I don't take that for granted. I thank you for the gift that this is. Lord, now in this time, we, we ask that you would speak to us, 
We ask, Lord, that you would keep our hearts soft towards you and that you would make yourself known to us and that you would shape us and form us more and more into your image. Jesus, you told us to pray, and and so we pray that your kingdom would come and that your will would be done right here in this time. In the name of Jesus, amen. If you've got your Bibles with you, you want to open them up to 1 Samuel chapter 17. It's on page 258 of, your, of my Bible, which is not helpful for you in any way. So I made that joke in like a year and a half, so I thought I'd break it out again today. Uh, if you don't have a physical Bible, please talk to me or one of the staff, because we, believe it or not, here at a church have Bibles, and we'd love to give one to you. Um, but 1 Samuel 17, a little bit of context. So... Um, for, for years before this chapter, the Israelites had, had asked for a king. They had been ruled by men and women called judges, empowered by God. They weren't kings, but they kind of led, led the nation. And the Israelites said, God, we really, really, really want a king like all the other nations. Some of you parents have experienced this, right? Your kids are like, I want a cell phone. Every other kid in my class has a phone. And God says, okay. But there are a lot of negative implications. There are going to be a lot of bad consequences to this. The moral of the story is, don't give your kids cell phones, parents. And some of you kids are like, that's the worst advice ever. I'm never coming to this church again. So be it. Uh, yeah, so God says, okay, fine, I'll give you a king. And, and he gives them Saul. And, and Saul starts out okay, ultimately kind of takes a turn for the worse. But in this story, Saul is, is the king. And is, the Israelites have an adversary, the Philistines. And, and uh, the Philistines were a coastal people who are trying to make an incursion into the area of land that the Israelites lived in. And the battles between the two are frequent. This chapter is one of those battles between them. And it's a bit unconventional because it's, it's fought, at least at first, by means of representative warfare, which means that both sides choose a champion who represents them and they fight against each other. It wasn't unheard of in the ancient world for this to happen, and it avoided, it could avoid a lot of bloodshed. So that's the setting. Uh, we're going to pick it up in verse 4, uh, and it's, it's a long, it's a lengthy chapter with a lot of dialogue, and so we're, we're just going to take kind of excerpts from it. And actually, I, uh, I've hired some help, some actors to help reenact this, and they, they came they came with a high cost. They required the, the salary of ice cream. Uh, so here, here it is, 1 Samuel 17, the first part of it. A champion named Goliath, who was from Gath, came out of the Philistine camp. His height was six cubits and a span. He wore a bronze helmet on his head and a coat of scale armor of bronze weighing 5,000 shekels. On his legs, he wore bronze greaves and a bronze javelin was slung on his back. His spear shaft was like a weaver's rod, and its iron point weighed 600 shekels. His shield-bearer went ahead of him. Then the Philistine said, This day I defy the armies of Israel. Give me a man. Let us fight each other. On hearing the Philistines' words, Saul and all the Israelites were dismayed and terrified. Jesse said to his son David, Take this roasted grain and these ten loaves of bread for your brothers and hurry to their camp. 
David left his things with the keeper of supplies, ran to the battle lines, and asked his brothers how they were. As he talked with them, Goliath, the Philistine champion from Gath, stepped out of his lines and shouted his usual defiance, and David heard it. David asked the men standing near him, What will be done for the man who kills the Philistine and removes this disgrace from Israel? Who is this uncircumcised Philistine that he should defy the armies of the living God? What David said was overheard and reported to Saul, and Saul sent for him. David said to Saul, Let no one lose heart on account of this Philistine. Your servant will go and fight him. Saul replied, You are not able to go out against this Philistine and fight him. You're only a young man, and he has been a warrior from his youth. But David said to Saul, Your servant has been keeping his father's sheep. When a lion or a bear came and carried off the sheep from the flock, All right, uh, so this is a story full of contrasts, and the contrast I want to look at in this first, uh, this first half of the story is the source of confidence for Goliath and David. So what, what is the source of confidence for Goliath? Why does he feel good about his chances? Well, as Saul says, he has been a warrior since youth, so there is an experience level here, right? He, he's, he's been here. He's done this before. He's also huge. I mean, the author goes to painstaking detail about how big and strong Goliath is. He's, depending on the Greek or Hebrew version of the Old Testament, between six foot nine and nine foot nine. He has a coat of armor weighing 125 pounds. Uh, James brings to our, our men's outdoor workout sometimes, he brings a 70-pound weighted vest. And we're supposed to run around in that thing. It is a beast. I can't imagine something almost twice that size Goliath wears as his armor. And then he's got this, this spear. Even the tip of it is, is like 15 pounds. I mean, this guy, is, he is massive. He is, he is gargantuan. So obviously, he, he's putting some weight, some confidence in that. As a warrior, you would think that's what matters. Experience, strength, size, those kinds of things. And this is true basically about every realm of life, that there is some kind of central metric or measure that if you are excelling at that, then you feel pretty secure about your position. If you're a business, it's all about the bottom line. So if your profit margins are good, if you're in the black, then you're, you're feeling confident. If you're a social media influencer, it's all about how many followers you have. And if, you're, if, if that's growing, then your confidence grows as well. You're a competitive sprinter. Your personal best time versus the personal bests of other racers in your race. That's what's going to give you confidence. If you're single, maybe in the dating world, it's your, it's your physical appearance or your job or your income or whatever it is that is kind of like this is the thing that gives you confidence. But actually, I, I think you could go a little bit deeper than that because I think for a lot of us, our confidence comes not only from those kinds of characteristics, but from from how people see us and think about us, right? If, if you have all this objective evidence that you are great at something, but everybody around you tells, that you tells you that you're terrible, 
your confidence is probably going to struggle as a result, right? And whereas if somebody tells you, hey, you can do this, I believe in you, I've got your back all the way, that's probably going to boost you, empower you quite a bit. And so Goliath not only has size and strength and experience, he's got a whole army of people behind him. All the Philistines, they've chosen him. They're sending him out for 40 straight days. They're presumably taunting the Israelites right along with him. They've totally got his back. And maybe you have, have experienced something like that of people having your back and how that's empowering. We could show about 2,000 interviews with athletes answering the same boring questions the same boring way. Well, I could never do this without the people you know, back at home or whatever. That, that's, that's just kind of like how we are built to be empowered by others. I, I, I bet you Goliath had some of that experience in this too. Here's the thing though. For David emphatically, none of that is the source of his confidence. He doesn't have experience as a warrior, and he doesn't have the size or the strength, and, I don't know if you noticed, but at every step of the way, he is discouraged by the people around him. It almost starts right from the beginning where his father, Jesse, sends him not as a warrior, not as a soldier like his three older brothers, but as, as a supplies transport, as, as a newsboy to bring back reports about how the battle is going. So that's how Jesse sees David. He's not a warrior. He's not ready for that. Jesse comes, or sorry, David comes to, to the battle and he, he sees Goliath taunting. He hears it. He hears about this treasure trove of rewards that is promised to whoever beats Goliath. We, we skipped that part in the reenactment, but, but Saul says, if you beat Goliath, you don't have to, you, you get to marry my daughter. You'll, you'll have great wealth and you don't have to pay taxes. Whoa! Nobody's interested at all. So David's just asking questions about it. He's just interested in this. And David's older brother, Eliab, hears about this. He, he, he gets wind of it. Now, if you had older siblings or have older siblings, uh, some of you maybe look at your older siblings and are like, I never want to be like that, the most nerdy misfit in the world. That, I was the oldest of four. That's how my younger siblings saw me as a teenager. But others maybe look at their older siblings and they say, that's exactly what I want to be like. I, just, I want their approval. And if you don't get the approval of your older siblings, it's this devastating thing. Eliab hears about David's interest. And he just starts hurling accusations at David. You are conceited and you've got a wicked heart and you're just, you're bloodthirsty. That's the only reason you're here. It's the only reason you're interested because you just want to see the battle. David is the guy at the UFC fight at the ringside going, yeah, maul him, get him. Like that's what Eliab thinks about, about David. So does David have the support of his family in this? Uh, no, not at all. Uh, and then David gets an audience with Saul because that's how low the bar is for Israelite courage at this point. If anyone even shows interest, they get to hang out with the king. It's like a pastor. If, anyone, if he hears that anybody actually wants to serve, it's like, let's go for a five-hour steak lunch on me. Uh, no, I'm just kidding. You guys are more eager to serve than that. Um, but yeah, he gets an audience with the king and he's sitting there with, with Saul. And the, and the first thing David says is don't worry about this. I've got this. I will, I will defeat Goliath. I will fight him. And, and Saul's initial response is, that's not going to work. You're way too small. 
Goliath is so much greater than you, there's no chance. So the greatest human authority in Israel says to David, this is never going to work, you don't stand a chance against him. Then later on, David actually meets Goliath. This goes into the next section, but you know how in some competitions, the other person actually recognizes and respects, you know, game respects game, that kind of idea, where they actually go, yes, you are skilled and gifted and so on. Like when you watch the Olympics and they're all like hugging each other and in interviews, they're almost like, I'm, I'm honored, I'm blessed to lose to this wonderful competitor. You know, like that's kind of the, the Olympic conduct. It's not David and Goliath at all. Goliath looks at David in verse 42, and we read that he despises him, taunts him, says, I'm going to feed your flesh to the birds and the wild animals. So David does not draw any amount of confidence from the respect of his opponent. Just time after time after time, David is discouraged. He's told that he can't do this. So all Worldly means of confidence are not present for David. And yet, he is confident. He's incredibly confident. Why? Well, when you read this, you might say, well, actually, he does have some experience. Because he, he had sheep, and they were attacked by that lion and by that bear, and David didn't run away. Like, a lion attacks and you don't run away. That's crazy to me. Have you been to the Vancouver Zoo? I mean, even though, like, lions are scary animals. So David does not run away. Instead, he takes his staff, he strikes the thing on the head, he kills it, saves his sheep. David has met forces greater than him before and come out victorious. So maybe that's why he's confident. He knows that he has some ability here. But he turns that around in verse 37. David says, The Lord who rescued me from the paw of the lion and the paw of the bear will rescue me from the hand of this Philistine. It was David who struck the death blow to the lion and the bear. And yet he says, It was God who rescued me. Because David recognizes that the only reason he could do this was because of the power and the presence of God in his life. That's the source of his confidence, is God's character and presence. Now, David is the only person in this story to even bring up God. For 30-something verses, you've got... You've got Goliath taunting the Israelites, the Israelites cowering in fear, even though... The Israelites are God's people. They're supposed to know about God. This is kind of their thing. But they look right past God and all they can see is Goliath. How many of us are like the Israelites? How many of us are functional atheists? That's a term that, that some have come up with to describe this kind of thinking where you believe cognitively that God exists that he is around, that he's present. But when push comes to shove, your actual day-to-day -day life, you act as though he was not real. Your, your daily decisions aren't impacted by him. You go about life the same way that the rest of the world does and only pay God lip service every now and then. See, that's how the Israelites are acting. David, on the other hand, looks past Goliath and all he can see is God. 
that's the source of his confidence, that, that David does not compare himself to Goliath, in which case he would have no confidence at all. Instead, he compares Goliath to God, and he believes that God is trustworthy. We sang that over and over again this morning. He believes that God is trustworthy, that his character is dependable, that what he has done before he will do again, and so he enters into the battle supremely confident. I, I think there's something here for all of us. I will confess to you that I, I struggle with confidence because I too often base it on how people see me and think about me. So sometimes I'm on top of the world because people are like, oh, that was great, thank you so much. Other times somebody says something and I'm just down in the dumps. I, I got no, no strength at all. And, and this story is a powerful witness to me of the confidence that is available in the Lord, in his character, regardless of how people see you, regardless of your experience or your natural gifts, this confidence that comes from God's character. But I want to say something especially to you preteens and teens and young adults, those of you who weren't able to escape and your parents kept you in here. Um, I want to say to you, to do something bold and scary for God, uh, to do something like, like serving in the church in a new way, or starting a prayer group with friends at school, starting an alpha program, or just asking a non-Christian friend if you can share your story of Christian faith with them, that idea might be terrifying to you. You might say, I, I can't do that. I've never done that before. I'm not good with my words. Nobody has told me until you right now, Pastor Craig, nobody's told me that I can do that. That's not the point. The point is that if you are a follower of Jesus, you have the spirit of the almighty God living within you. And whether or not you can do it, he can. So put your faith and your confidence in him. Amen? But that's not it, guys. We're not done, okay? It's halfway through. Let's get back to the action. First Samuel 17, here's the second half. This is David. Go, and the Lord be with you. Then Saul dressed David in his own tunic. He put a coat of armor on him, a bronze helmet on his head. David fastened on his sword over the tunic and tried walking around because he was not used to these things. I cannot go in these, he said to Saul. I'm not used to them. So he took them off, then he took his staff in his hand, chose five smooth stones from the stream, put them in the pouch of his shepherd's bag, and with the sling in his hand, approached the Philistine. I think we, we, had, we had more than that. But that might be it. Is that it? We're going to have to say that's it. Uh, so I'll, <laughs> I'll read it. Well, basically, you guys know the story. David takes the, the stones. David and Goliath kind of uh, banter a little bit back and forth to each other. Uh, David, or Goliath, despises David. David says, look, I, uh, all those gathered here will know that it is not by sword or spear that the Lord saves, for the battle is the Lord's, and he will give you all, uh, give all of you into our hands. 
Uh, and they, David runs to Goliath, takes the stone out of his, uh, out of his pocket, puts it in the sling, whips it around, uh, and, and strikes Goliath, and Goliath falls over dead. Now, when we reenacted it, I did not include the part after that. So it ended with Goliath falling down, face down, uh, and he's done. David goes over and he chops off Goliath's head and with his own sword, and, and then he carries Goliath's head, head around like a championship trophy. I didn't include that part in the video uh, because I wanted to keep it PG for the kids, but I, I, I just don't want you to think that I'm censoring anything. So it's, it's kind of a grisly story in the end. I don't know how often that part makes it into the kids' version of the story. But in any case... The, the contrast I want to pull out here is the, the armor, the weaponry that the two have. And, and that came out in the, in the video. And we've already talked about Goliath, how he is outfitted with all this crazy, like, yeah, heavy armor, sword, uh, shield, sword, javelin, spear, all of that stuff. Uh, Saul, when he finally says, okay, fine, David, you can go and you can fight the battle. He assumes that David is going to fight the same way that Goliath does. And so he gives him the same kind of armor because this is the assumption that this is hand-to-hand, close combat. You've got to wear this armor too. Loads him down with all of this stuff. This is just a given. This is how it's got to go down. Um, Some of you might know the name Malcolm Gladwell. Uh, Well-read journalist and author. He wrote a book about eight years ago called David and Goliath where he used this biblical story as the foundation for a book about underdogs and weaknesses turned into strengths and that kind of thing. And the first story that he talks about besides David and Goliath is the story of a junior girls basketball team in Redwood City, California. Uh, The coach was a guy who never had played basketball, didn't really know much about basketball at all. And all his, all the girls on his team, besides his daughter, were, were daughters of tech entrepreneurs, little blonde girls, he called them, no height, no basketball skill at all. None of them had ever played. Uh, but this, this coach, he was puzzled about how all the other teams played basketball, how you basically just defended the last third of the court, right? You only played, a lot of teams only really play defense when the other team is already at the three-point line on, on your own end. And he said, that's crazy. We should be defending the whole court. That's just the, that, that to him seemed natural. And so in, in practice, he focused less on basketball skill and a lot more on just running these girls, getting to be, them to be really fit. And so when game time came, these girls just played maniacal defense the whole way. And they forced tons of turnovers, scored lots of easy baskets. This team of girls who had no basketball skill and no size, which you would think were pretty important in basketball, ended up making it to the national championships because they played in such an unconventional way. It's basically what happens with David. Saul loads him down with all of this armor. And David can't even walk in it. He's not even mobile. And so he takes it all off, and he goes into battle as a shepherd, just with, uh, with that sling and with those stones and the staff in his hand. That's, that's it. But the truth is, this wasn't an ineffective way of fighting a battle. Actually, in the book of Judges, we read about 700 slingers who could sling a stone, a sling, sling a stone at a hair and not miss. So you could be deadly accurate 
with a sling, and you could whip these stones really fast. A ballistics expert from the Israeli Defense Forces uh, estimated that David could have slung this stone at somewhere between 120 and 130 kilometers an hour, which is more than enough with a stone to penetrate someone's skull. So, so deadly accurate, deadly fast. And when you look at it that way, it's actually not surprising that David wins the battle. Right? If Goliath is this big, slow, lumbering giant, and David doesn't engage him in hand-to-hand combat at close proximity, but instead whips a stone at him from a distance, Goliath really doesn't have much of a chance. It comes down to the confidence that David has in the Lord and his willingness to fight unconventionally with unconventional weapons. And I want, to, I want to just step away from the Old Testament for a moment here because it reminds me of, of some things that Paul wrote to the Christians in Corinth. These Christians in Corinth were, were dealing with a lot of challenges and were tempted to address them in the same way that the world does. But here's how David wrote about their worldliness. He said in chapter t- 2 Corinthians 10, For though we live in the world... We do not wage war as the world does. The weapons we fight with are not the weapons of the world. On the contrary, they have divine power to demolish strongholds. We demolish arguments and every pretension that sets itself up against the knowledge of God and we take captive every thought to make it obedient to Christ. So here's Paul saying, we don't fight with the weapons of the world. We have a different weapon. And what Paul seems to be referring to here is the word of truth. That we fight with the good news about Jesus. And that this truth demolishes strongholds. It it removes the hold that sin has on people's lives. It defeats these arguments and these worldviews that lead to death. The truth about Jesus dispels all of that. It's an unconventional weapon. The good news about Jesus. But Paul says that's how we fight the battle. Ephesians 6 Paul talks about how our battle is not against flesh and blood, but against spiritual forces of evil. And he says our armor is made up of things like like the shoes of the gospel of peace. Peace is part of our weaponry. He talks about a shield of faith. He talks about a helmet of salvation, a breastplate of righteousness, a sword of the Spirit. And we go, finally, a sword, yeah. The sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. The word of God, his message, this is the the sword that penetrates people's hearts. That's how you fight the battle. And then you think about Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew 5. He talks about our human enemies, our human adversaries, and how do we fight against them? He says, turn the other cheek when they strike you. He says, put them to shame with how much you are willing to do for them, to bless them. He says, love your enemies. Pray for those who persecute you. 
That's how you fight against human enemies the Jesus way. This is how you fight your battle. If you are or are going to become a Christian, you fight your battles not with fists, not with legal challenges, not with political influence. You fight the battle by holding fast to the character of God and the proclamation of the name of Jesus. See, if you are or will become a follower of Jesus, you are a David. As a church, we are a David in a world of Goliaths. I don't care what the official census says about how many Christians there are in Canada. I can guarantee you that in terms of people who are actually committed to Jesus and have made him the center of their life, that number is not very many in our country. So if you are a follower of Jesus, you are vastly outnumbered. Do you know that? We know that, especially here in greater Vancouver. You are vastly outnumbered. You have no strength in the eyes of the world. How is this for an empowering message, guys? You are weak. (laughs) And the world, the world's ways of thinking and living simply do not jive with your way of thinking or living if you are a faithful follower of Jesus. In fact, the world will look at you and may very well, like a life, despise you for how you think and how you live. And you might think, well, let's, let's arm up. Let's put the suit on. Let's, let's go to war here. And, and you want to fight the battle with the weapons of the world. But you're David. It doesn't fit you. In fact, it just saps you to fight the, the battle the way the world does, just saps you of whatever strength and power the Holy Spirit would give to you, and, and you will surely be annihilated. So put that armor down. Just put it away. It will do nothing good for you. Instead, you've got to fight with what God has given you to fight with. For David, that was what he had as a shepherd. For you and for me, that is to emulate the character of Jesus and to proclaim his name and his salvation. So if you go into battle, don't you dare do it with your confidence based on anything but the Lord. And don't you dare do it with any battle, with any weapons other than what God has given you. The gospel, the good news about Jesus. See, if you ask me, the the key verse in this whole passage is verse 47. It is not by sword or spear that the Lord saves, for the battle is the Lord's. It is his battle. So fight with the confidence he's given you and fight with the armor that he's given you. Now we're almost done. The the landing gear is coming down, but we're we're not quite there. In the chapter right before this, there's another key verse. Uh, David, actually, in the chapter before, is anointed as the future king of Israel by Samuel, the prophet and the judge Samuel. And Samuel, as he visits David's home, he sees Eliab, and he sees David's older brothers, and he's impressed. He goes, these guys look like kings. And God tells Samuel, he says to him, the Lord does not look at the things people look at. People look at the outward appearance But the Lord looks at the heart. That's what we've been talking about, right? David does not see Goliath the same way everybody else does because God doesn't see Goliath in that way. 
The, the way the, the appearances seem at first are not always the case. I want you to look at this cross right here. There are, um, there are crosses that are, are majestic and glorious. Uh, the cross that was on the front of our building was closer to that. It is, it is not there right now. Uh, apparently it was the wrong color and the LED lights on the back were the wrong uh, color as well. I hope it's not one of these like the Grinch stole Christmas things in Cindy Lou Who's house with the tree, you know, and they're like, hey, like we have to bring it to Santa's workshop to fix it, but he's really just stealing it. Hopefully the people who took the cross were legitimate. Um, I'm sure they were. Some crosses are glorious and majestic. This one, I mean, it's, it's not the sturdiest fellow. And, uh, and it's not, I mean, if you take a close look at it, it definitely is not the most aesthetically pleasing thing you've ever seen. And, and to be honest, it almost doesn't really fit here, does it? I mean, this brand spanking new building, everything is new, and, and, and then you have this. And I think that is absolutely perfect. Because I've, I've said things like this before, and, and I'll, I'll say it again, that... That this gift, this, this building is a gift. That the, the prayers and the dreams and the visions that have fueled this, it's so, so good. And we're so excited to be here. And there's nothing wrong with things having a, having a pleasant ex, uh, appearance or things being new. There's nothing wrong with that. Goliath looks at David and he goes, oh yeah, he's handsome, he's ruddy. Yeah, he, he can recognize that. There's nothing wrong with that. But if we think that this building is the, the armor or the weapon that is going to win the hearts and minds of this community. Or if we, or if we put our confidence in the, the newness of this building and the technology, then, then we are just fighting the battle the way the world does, and we will be annihilated. See, our, um, our confidence is right here. It's, 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 in, it's in the cross. And our, our weapon, our armor is the cross. And I will tell you, as a pastor of this church, we will not water down this message. We will not compromise this message. We will not deviate from this message. The message that God became flesh. He made his dwelling among us, that he was crucified in the person of Jesus, who was crucified as a sin offering for the forgiveness of all who trust in him and that he was raised to new life in power and that this life is for all who again trust in him. Now that message might sound like foolishness to the world and it might sound like it is hopelessly inadequate to deal with the problems of the modern world but I can tell you that that perception is nothing new. Paul wrote to those status-conscious, power-hungry, world-pleasing Christians in Corinth this way in 1 Corinthians chapter 1. He said, For since in the wisdom of God, the world through its wisdom did not know him, God was pleased through the foolishness of what was preached to save those who believe. Jews demand signs and Greeks look for wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified a stumbling block to Jews and foolishness to Gentiles, but to those whom God has called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ the power of God and the wisdom of God. So I don't know, maybe this building is what drew you in in the first place, 
But this is not what's going to save you. It's not what you need. What you need and what will save you is right there. And that is what defeats the Goliaths of this world. So I want to pray. And, and I want to invite you to pray with me kind of a, a bit of a resolution to find our confidence and to find our, or to, to, to make our weaponry, our armor, the cross. And we invite the worship team up and, and let's pray. Lord Jesus, we thank you that, that you do not, you do not look at things the way the world does. And you do not do things the way the world does. You brought about salvation and victory over sin, over death, over evil, by means of a Roman execution device. You give us life and strength and power by inviting us to die to ourselves, to humble ourselves, and to put our trust in you, in the cross. Lord Jesus, I, I, I want to pray, maybe on behalf of others here, we want to pray, Lord, uh, for forgiveness, for ways in which we have fought various battles in our lives, the weapons of the world, and the ways in which we have based our confidence on things in the world instead of on you. We want to repent of that, Lord. We want to say, Lord Jesus, that we put our trust in you and that we will proclaim you and that the greatest tool that we have as a church is simply the proclamation that there is salvation in the name of Jesus. Pray this in your name. Amen.